following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like finding an onion ring in your french fries good. Feel that way every single day when you work with a Trunk Club personal stylist. Meet your stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. Welcome to the Forbes interview. I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do in-depth interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. And support from Forbes comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. You're confident when it comes to your work and life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same confidence when it comes to refinancing your existing mortgage or buying a home. It lets you understand all the details so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. Go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today, I hope you brought your appetite because we have the CEO and co-founder of Sweet Greens, Jonathan Neiman. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So I, we, we, we've met, we go back a couple years, which is great. And I remember when I first heard about Sweet Greens, it was one of your, um, your publicists, who's a good friend of mine. And he said, listen, I know you're going to, you know, you're going to slap the phone against the desk when you hear this, but these guys at Sweet Green have created an incredible restaurant chain. And beyond that, they make salad a lifestyle. And I just laughed and he laughed, but I met you guys and went to your uh, store. I think it was in uh, probably in Round Union Square, and it was. It was like the the the, the lettuce cult. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we, we do. We do have. We've created a little bit of a lifestyle around the brand. So, explain to my listeners here, our listeners here, what, how do you make a basically what would be a normal salad shop in many places a cult following and a community? How did that even happen? Yeah, so let's just go back to where it all started. Sweet Green, we started Sweet Green while we were seniors at college um, about 11 years ago. It was 2007, and just to paint the picture, 2007, we're students at, in, in Washington, D.C. We, we Myself and my two co-founders went to Georgetown, yep. and it started with just a problem we had in our own life with nowhere healthy to eat. And we wanted a place that was delicious, healthy, affordable, fast, a nice, cool experience and couldn't find it. We felt like you had to make a choice at this time, whether you wanted either food was slow, expensive, and boring, mm-hmm. or it was it was fast, cheap, and really bad for you. And we just believed there was, there was a different way to do it. And so it started with us just wanting to build something for our own lives. And in that, we always, you know, we always believed in infusing storytelling, art, music, creativity, and culture into the brand and it was in a way a way of infusing our own personalities and the things we love and telling the story around the food you know for me i've always believed that you know food is content it's something that you know think about what you do in life you go around eating food for entertainment but it's also for nourishment and we always we wanted to find this balance between the two so from the very beginning we wanted to be more than just a restaurant a place to get you know Mm -hmm. a salad or a healthy meal it was about telling a story about where the food came from and why that was important. It was about connecting to the community and connecting to culture in different ways. It was about, you know, sharing art, sharing music, sharing ideas. And so I think uh, all of those things and this focus on the experience, not just the product, was was kind of what created this culture and this brand beyond just the bowl. So most college 
a lot of college students are just <laughs> focused on we're going to find that that slice of pizza, you know, scrounging up enough money to go out for a restaurant maybe once in a while. You guys, you know, went beyond that and we're going to you started a business while at Georgetown, which is obviously a, you know, elite school, like a lot of coursework. How do you go from like, hey, let's find some healthy food to, you know what, let's start something. Let's start bringing our uh, food in and serving our, you know, the community. How'd that happen? So we actually started with started with writing a business plan and a business plan and creating a menu. And so it was a really it was a fun process, about a six month process of writing writing the plan and the vision of what we wanted to be, not just the one restaurant, but what did we what did we see our long term like this this really we had from the very beginning this idea of creating this global iconic brand mm-hmm. and this food ecosystem. And we also uh, were really obsessed with food. And so we'd spend, you know, every day coming up with food and testing food and trying it on friends and so the combination for me of like doing something that we love to do which we love to do which was you know making food and sharing food and then this business aspect of creating a business out of it was was a really fun process we uh we spent senior year writing the business plan and then raising uh raising a little bit of money from family and friends our first restaurant cost about three hundred thousand dollars so we went out asking anyone who would listen to us for a check. Um, we ended up talk, asking about 200 people to invest and got 45 people to give us, you know, just over $5,000 each. Oh, wow. you know, about $7,000 each. So it was a very, very uh, long find, fundraising. We had kind of had to go through what I call like the gauntlet of really believing it by we had to believe in it so much by getting other people to give us money at the time for something that we really had no experience doing and you guys took that money and you rented a giant space in georgetown right <laughs> we rented a space that was the size of a closet it was 500 square feet uh, it was on m street right off campus but it was tiny i mean five 500 square feet um with an ada bathroom and we did all of our scratch cooking there but what it forced us to do in the, is in the bathroom. In the bathroom? Keep, no, not in the bathroom, but in that kitchen. I mean, in that tiny kitchen, we did everything from scratch, as we still do. Um, and what one of the things it taught us was how to keep things really simple from an operational perspective. And also, it forced us to do certain things in terms of like how fresh we had to keep the food. We couldn't store food for more than a day. We didn't have enough space. So certain things that these constraints that this space created really were constructive constraints for how we actually ended up building a, a great product and brand. And the restaurant business is such a tough business. Um, so many people fail. It's so fickle. There's, you know, it's very complicated. How did you first make your place stand out against all the other um, you know, restaurants in Georgetown? Um, How did you stand out from just being like, oh, it's like a salad place to, well, this is something different? Yeah, so from the very beginning, uh, what we did then and it's still what we do today uh, a few things. One, uh, started with a mission and, and values. So always wanted to be about more than just a place, but, but on, you know, have, you know, have a mission behind what we were doing. So Sweetgreen, our mission is to build healthier communities by connecting people to real food. And from the very beginning, when we opened that first restaurant, it was, it was, it was about connecting with the community. So it was, you know, first day of sales, we gave it to a nonprofit within the community. Hmm. Second, it was around our food. Um, we always, you know, we always believed uh, there's four tenets to our food ethos. Um, one is transparency. You know, we thought we've always thought that it was crazy how you know where you know. 
so many products that you consume, you know where you know where the things come from. But when it comes to food, you have no idea. So we wanted to create a restaurant company that was transparent about where the food came from. Two, uh, it was really important for us to to have food that was that was made from scratch. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you know, people ask us what's like the special sauce. Why does we you know what's why does sweet green taste different than the place next door? Well, it comes down to, to these things. It's, it's, we, we know where the food comes from. We're, we have a very, you know, a really great supply chain. We work very closely with some of the best growers in the country, and we make the food from scratch. Um, with that, we, we, we have a strong belief in local sourcing and, and, and sustainability. So it's those four tenants around our food that I think really make us stand out from the competition, and it's doing that at scale. So, you know, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of places, uh, a lot of restaurants can do that with one restaurant but and do that at a higher price point. But I think what was, what was disruptive was doing that and doing it in, at fast food prices, fast food speed, and doing it at scale now across the country in almost 100 locations. 100 locations. You mentioned, too, like, so when you first started this and you wrote the business plan, this was not supposed to be like a one-off place. You always thought of this as kind of a large-scale brand, large, um, you know, potentially nationwide uh, endeavor. Yes, we did. And what and you have and what was that like? How did you guys start planning that? Like, what were the? I know that you have two other co-founders, and I believe Nick comes from a restaurant background, right? Correct. Yeah, Nick. Nick came from a restaurant hospitality background. Um, and so that was, you know, that was really helpful because he almost, he almost has this, this hospitality in his blood. Um, and, you know, Nick's mom was also really helpful just, you know, giving us the, uh, the 10, restaurant 101 when we got started. Mm-hmm. Um, but for us, it was, it, yeah, it was always about creating something bigger than one restaurant. One, one thing that we, we always told ourselves when we were starting was, let's create a mind share first, market share will follow. So it was always about how do we tell the story? How do we create the brand? And then the market share will come. We knew we were kind of early in terms of this this changing behaviors and changing habits about people caring where their food came from and eating healthier. And so for us, it was you know we I, I, I always said let's let's just buy ourselves a spot, it, you know, in the race for when people decide to change how they want to eat. And that's what you're seeing is happening now, 10 years later, is now the world has woken up to the fact that the food that we're eating, is, that they're eating is killing them. And now we have, you know, we have a brand that people know and love. And now the real work begins of how do we take this from, you know, the, you know, million, you know, millions of customers we serve today to the tens and hundreds of millions of customers that we want to serve. Support for the Forbes podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask why. Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to their rate and term in real time? And why can't there be a client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com Forbes. 
equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Yeah, and what is that plan? Kind of, so you have 100 stores now. You own them all. What is the like? What is that the 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 scalability? What what do you want to do? How many stores will make you happy? How do you kind of manage, especially when you're dealing with logistics and fresh produce and not much refrigeration um, and seasons? How, how what's the plan there? Yeah, so for us, we actually uh, don't really think that much in terms of number of look number of stores or restaurants. Um, for us, a rest a restaurant is a, is just one way of connecting to consumers. But over time, we kind of see Sweet Green evolving as more of a glo- of a food ecosystem, a connected food ecosystem. Really think uh, think about being able to eat this healthy food, personalized, healthy, delicious food that is personalized to you whenever and wherever you are. Whether that's from different retail formats, delivery, um, other partnerships. Really, we want to create food as accessible as possible. So for us, it's, you know, I use an, an, a company that we, we admire that's done this well is a company like Nike. You know, it's not about how many Nike towns there are. It's about how many customers you have a direct relationship with and how many communities that we can influence. And so we kind of think about it the same way. A restaurant's a great way for us to kind of enter a community, tell our story, connect directly in real life. But then there's a whole direct-to-consumer aspect to what we're doing. Once we've we have this relationship with the with the customer, where we can meet them at all, at their work, we can meet them at home, um, and we can just have this ongoing relation, trusted relationship around around real, delicious, healthy food. Yeah, and you, reaching the consumer, you have a very interesting um, you know tech model. In fact, um, a couple of years ago, we, we, you got to you, we got to host you guys at, at our under thirty summit and. We were. It was funny. We were debating on like, is Sweetgreen a food company? Is it a tech company? Is it a is it a new e-commerce company? And in the end, it, you you guys can fit into basically any of those categories. Um, how did that happen? And wh- how do you stay on top of you know? There's so many. It's so way to it's so easy to throw technology on things to sound cool, but a lot of it's a waste. Like, how did you guys get your your um, strategy down for that? For us, it, it's all. It's just obsession with the customer and the experience. And so we want to we want to delight and meet the meet the customer where they are and re, and just make this idea of eating healthier and eating healthy delicious food easier. Right? Sometimes I say bridge the gap between health and convenience, mm-hmm. and technology is a great way of doing that. So for us, what, what the ways we leverage technology um, largely from a consumer perspective is through our mobile app. So about almost half of our sales today. Come from our uh, come through our mobile app. Half the sales. Um, so for a restaurant company, that fifty percent of our sales digital is pretty huge. What that does is it gives us a direct relationship with our consumers, and eventually, what this allows us to do is start to personalize the experience to each consumer. So both from a hey, we uh, from a food, actual food perspective as well as from a content perspective. Mm-hmm. So uh, the other thing is. Technology allows us to better manage our supply chain. For example, we're using blockchain today to manage our supply chain and have full transparency and traceability of all of our products. Um, and it's just a, da- a data-driven approach mm-hmm. to doing business. What does blockchain so do? What, what are the advantages of blockchain with what you're doing? So for us, it, it just puts all of our food um, on a public ledger. 
And what that's what, what we're going to now do is, you know, instead of having a local list where you can see where all of our food comes from, you're going to be able to see on your app, oh, tomatoes picked two days ago at this farm, and they're at peak freshness now. So it's just leveraging that that technology to provide a better consumer experience. So for us, you know, the other thing about technology and the way we think about it is is it can't, to your point, it can't be technology for technology's sake, and you can't just bolt it on. So what a lot of places do is they'll just, they'll, for example, build a mobile app and try to apply it to their, to their restaurant as is. What we found is that doesn't really work. You kind of, ha- you kind of have to think holistically about the full experience. So it's more of a technology mindset in terms of how we work and how we build things versus, you know, let's just add technology because it sounds cool. Mm-hmm. And what is um you mentioned before you want to make the app um, so it, it can really be customizable and it kind of caters to the individual customer. What how does that look in real life? What what are the advantages? Like what what do I get if I when I go on to Sweet Greens? How is that different for me than if it was you know you kind of going on? Well, a couple things. So uh, one uh, on the mobile experience already today you're starting to see things that you don't have in the restaurant. What the mobile you know it's similar to e-commerce brands how you can. You can serve more via the, the, the digital channel. You can part, kind of hold a wider inventory. We can do the same thing. Secondly, because of the relationship we have and the and and the data that we have in terms of your taste, nutrition, uh, taste, nutrition, and dietary preferences, we can start to curate food that you will like versus something that someone else will like. So, for example, if you don't eat chicken right now on our standard menu. Six of, six of our menu items have chicken. All of those bowls can be remade in a way without chicken and have other things to replace that protein. So if we know you do not eat chicken, we can, re- we can start to just, this is a very simple version of recreate those options for you without chicken. Now take that a little bit further is, you know, we know you like spicy food. Now we can start to curate that. We know you don't like cilantro. You're one of those people that cilantro tastes like soap. So well, let's not show you cilantro on anything you like. Yeah. You know, it's almost you know, another company that I, that I admire a lot is Netflix. For us, we think about how can we build this Netflix of food that really builds this great relationship with you and knows what you want before even you do. So if I don't like vegetables, you can just give me a bowl full of chicken? Rice, chicken. So that, and, and Maybe ter- some hot sauce? Um, so tell me about, I mean, you mentioned as food is content, but you guys create your own content. And, you know, even off the bat, you started your own music festival. I want to hear how that got started. Yeah, absolutely. So started the music festival really as a solution to a problem. When we opened our second restaurant in Washington, D.C., um, it was in DuPont Circle. And unlike the first one, we had no customers. We opened the doors and pretty much no one showed up. So our idea of marketing and connecting to the community was a guitar center, buying a big speaker, setting up a table outside the restaurant, and setting music on the street. And something kind of clicked. It was this idea of like tapping into community and music, music being this like universal language, and people connecting to Sweetgreen as not just a place to go eat, but a place to go hang out and and connect over this music. There, a light bulb went off. So with that, we started. Uh, a block party and our second restaurant was right behind a farmer's market mm-hmm. um, the farmer's market in DC the DuPont farmer's market and what we did is we started creating this block party in that parking lot after the farmer's market 
block party was very successful, and so we decided let's take a big bet and make this bigger. And so, so real quick, what happened? What would what would be take me to the block party? What would what would be going on there? So block party, we had, we had a number of them. The last one, which was the biggest one, was uh, was uh, hot chip DJ'd. Um, we had a bunch of local uh, our, uh, local bands played. Uh, one of the we had one of the one of the bigger local bands in DC uh, called US Royalty played, and we had a lot of local vendors, a lot, a lot of our farmers there serving food. Uh, a couple brand partners doing activations, and it was just like a you know Sunday afternoon where you got to have a, you know have a beer, walk you know walk around, listen to music, very casual, maybe 500 people throughout the day. Uh-huh. Um, but we you know we realized that we this could be something bigger. Um, we this could be something so much more, a bigger way to tell our story and connect to the community. And so what we did the next year is we decided. Uh, to make it, you know, to go big, partnered uh, with Meriwether Post Pavilion, and we took it from 500 people in the parking lot to 15,000 people at Meriwether the next year. Um, first year it was, you know, the, the the festival was headlined by The Strokes, wow. and over the past seven years we've had some of the biggest names in music from uh, Calvin Harris to The Weeknd to Kendrick Lamar. Uh, you know, we've had really some huge, huge names. The festival grew to about 25,000 people over two days. And it was just a way for us to take one of these experiences, a music festival experience, experience which is usually one of the most unhealthy days of the year, and make it, you know, have sweet green there and have healthy options while you're at a music festival. So it was a, it was a really fun way for us just to connect to the community. And we still, you know, we today we still have uh, we host music events and block parties across across the country. Do you still do that? Because that was called Sweet Life, right? Sweet Life, yeah. So we do you we still host do it? Sweet Life block parties uh, still across the country and are kind of reimagining what the big event will be for next year. So I mean, how'd you go from a you know a, a five hundred person? I'm sorry, five hundred square foot restaurant to a second one with a speaker outside to then the next year getting 15,000 people like I don't understand that jump you know sometimes we you just got to take a chance and you when I felt the same way when we opened that first restaurant to when we started the festival to kind of some of the things we're doing right now when you're when you really focus on the on the customer what does the customer really want and in our case a lot of these times we were that customer it doesn't feel that risky, right? It doesn't, it just, you know the need for it. And I'll tell you, when we opened that very first restaurant, you know, people ask, were you scared? Did, did that sound like, were you, were you scared taking money from people? Were you scared opening a restaurant? And honestly, we were so, like, we were so close to it. We knew so many people that wanted it, and we wanted it so bad. We knew there was people like us that we felt, honestly, zero risk in doing it. And we see, I feel the same way today about a lot of the things that we're doing. I'm looking at the world today and, and you know, the communities that we're in, and people want to eat better food. Mm-hmm. It's just so hard to do. It's so hard to find food that is delicious and healthy at the same time and then, and then convenient and affordable. And we really want to kind of transform that, make food as, you know, as convenient. Why, why can't, can't the healthy food be as convenient as the unhealthy food? Why can you have Domino's? like ordered said you can order Domino's 17 different ways and i admire Domino's a lot as a company why can't we do that for food that is actually good for you 
And so some of some of the bets we're making now, we're making a big bet around kind of making food fully on demand, uh, similar to Domino's, but doing it with healthy food. And it's a big bet. It's, there's a huge investment in technology and logistics to do this. But I kind of feel the same way I did when we opened that first restaurant, that I know people want this. We've spoken to the customer and we're so close to them that it doesn't feel like such a big bet. So what is food on demand? Is that basically like easier to get you know, delivery and other options? Correct. Yeah. We want, to, we want to make it where you can order in many different ways. You can have it delivered quickly, affordably, um, and conveniently to wherever you are. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm sitting here in New York and you're in L.A., which... You know, great food cities, great options, especially the if you wanted to go quote healthy and, and vegetarian and vegan and you know any any kind you want in New York and L.A. So many parts of the country, forget cities. There are so many towns that are food deserts, and you go to there, you know, these towns and you know more rural areas, and there's a uh, just fast food everywhere, and there's nothing anywhere close. Not even there's not even supermarkets miles away. Is there any way to get sweet greens in there, or just any way to address these kind of food desert areas, as they call them now? Oh, absolutely. Um, that's actually our, our long-term mission, and really what we're after is is not just making healthy food accessible for for wealthy and educated communities, but to make it accessible everywhere. So for for me, I think about you know there's a few steps in getting there. Um, one, it's, it's creating a brand and a product that, that everyone will want. It's creating that desire. It's making this, this type of food really, like, craveable and sexy. Um, that's why we do a lot of things with, you know, with culture and try to, you know, not eat, the, eat sweet cream because it's good for you. It's eat it because it's good. Eat it because it's cool. Yeah. Um, second, it's the accessibility, to your point. There's a lot of places where you don't even have it. Um, and so the next step is how do we start to make sweet green accessible or help this type of food accessible in communities? We have a, we have a, uh, a project that we do in every, a community project we do in every city that we're in. Um, we work with a different partner in each city, but we have, for example, in Los Angeles, we took over an old mini mart. It was an old convenience store called Hank's Mini Mart. We worked with the proprietor there, Kelly, to, to fully renovate her mini mart and take it from a place that was just essentially a liquor store to a community space that, one, is beautiful, but two, has access to fresh food, including, you know, the option to have some, some grab-and-go sweet green, sweet green options there. Well, I hope, they still, so, I hope they still have the liquor there, I hope. They still do. Yeah. No, and it's not about taking that away. It's not about taking the other things away. It's just about now having the option for some fresh food. Um, the next piece is, and and then the next piece is the education. You know, people spend today spend half as much of their disposable income on food as they did 40 years ago, but they spend twice as much on healthcare. And people are just starting to make the link between what they eat and how it makes them feel, both short term and long term. And so, for us, the long term of influencing people, one, we, you know, we're doing a lot of work to figure out how we can bring the cost down. So once people desire it, have access to it, understand why it's important, the next step is making it affordable. And so we kind of think about all of those pieces uh, are really important for us in our long-term mission. How do you kind of balance out the, the mission um, and the social good part with the fact that, you know, you're also, you're a for-profit company. You're one of the few venture-backed, um, you know, restaurant startups um, in the country. 
how does that balance work and how do you kind of work with your your investors um, in this? Yeah, so for me, it comes down to our first core value. It's win, win, win. Um, and it's coming up with solutions where the customer wins, the community wins, and the company wins. And, I, you know, Sweetgreen is not a not-for-profit. We are, we are a for-profit, very capitalistic business. And we believe that there is a world where you can do good for society and do good for business, do good by doing well. And so uh, it's just core to my belief that, that these things can make you a better business. It's not corporate social responsibility. So all of these, you know, this, a lot of these things that we talk about, for example, things like Hank's Mini Mart, it's not there for charity. It's, it's there to, you know, it's great for the community and that the goodwill is awesome, mm-hmm. but eventually it's going to create new customers for us and a whole new community we can go into. And we have so many examples of that. Um, but I believe you have to really think about think about this, you know, this through through this lens of win win win, and this, you know, maybe this another word for it is conscious capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do believe they can go together. You have 100 stores now. How do you guys scale and then, but at the same time, keeping it keeping it special, keeping the food quality high? I mean, it's it's amazing. Like on the uh, uh, if you go to the Upper East Side, where I call like the Lululemon co- corridor. On uh, Second Avenue, there's you know there's all the gyms and there's like twelve salad places and juice places and Soul Cycle and everything, and there's a sweet green and you know the the food's doing you know okay business around it, but you guys are always line out the door. It's just interesting how you kind of keep that buzz going. Honestly, it's very simple for us. Focus on the experience. Focus on the the quality of the food. You know we but. Our food is not that complicated. We just buy really good food, usually locally from great farmers we trust. We keep it very simple in terms of what we do for it with it, and we make it from scratch. And I, that people just really appreciate that. It's a lot of work. There's a lot of there's a lot of labor and love that goes into that. Mm-hmm. But I think it, you know at the end of the day, people want an experience where they can come in, have you know, very frictionless pickup experience, but while still having that nice human connection or that sweet touch, as we call it, and then food that you can actually, like, taste. And there's something visceral that happens when you taste food that is in season and local. It just has a, has this taste that, you you know, people, I think, aren't used to eating. And so we're excited about sharing that with the rest of the country and, and eventually the rest of the world. So 100 stores, how many, how many employees do you have now? I mean, it's a tough business, a lot of churn. Yeah, today we have about 4,000 employees altogether, about 150 at the Treehouse, which is our support center, uh-huh. um, and then uh, about 4,000 uh, team members across the country. What have, what's kind of been like the biggest lessons of some of the, the, um, your biggest mistakes as you've gotten into the food business, but also just scaled to, you know, you said you were three college friends seven years ago, now you have 4,000 uh, know, employees? I'd say some of the biggest lessons are always around or the biggest mistakes are always around people. Um, I think as you build a business, you know, you, it's, it's about really assembling a great team. And especially, you know, especially retail. Retail is a team sport. Um, and what we do is really, a t- you know, a, a team effort. And I think our biggest mistakes have been not you know, either the wrong people on the team or not investing ahead of the growth with the right people. Um, or maybe, you know, not using our values and growing for growth's sake, but not really focusing on making the consumer experience better. Mm-hmm. So 
those have typically been the mistakes. When we when we really focus on bringing on people that live our culture and our values, um, and team you know team players that really want to continue to innovate and disrupt the food the food industry, everything kind of works out. And you know one of the like the oh wow parts of it is when you do bring on great people, the fact that how how much of an unlock it is for business. I you know I say that great talent is a multiplier. When you bring on great people, they bring great people. And and things just really multiply really, really quickly. Has your hiring been a lot of um have you brought in like experts from the from the food industry or you, you find that there's you know you bring in you know people with new views that come in and kind of jump in and more of an entrepreneurial bent or maybe a combo of both? It's it's really a combination. So you know our business is you know a combination of you know it, it, there's really kind of three things going on. It, it's uh, there's the technology piece to what we do and the and the designing experiences, which typically we do not bring on people from food uh, from a food background. There's very few restaurants that have done this. Um, we then we but when it comes to actual running restaurants. We do bring on people who have, you know, deep operational expertise in food. And then lastly, uh, when it comes to the art and the storytelling and the creativity, we bring on people from just, you know, other great brands. And so, you know, I think if you look at our treehouse, I'd say, you know, probably less than 25 percent have, you know, maybe a third have worked in food before. Mm But it is important to balance it out with those, with all you know, a diverse group of people and backgrounds and experiences. Very cool. And in terms of we we're talking food trends before, what what do you see in in the food industry right now? Like what is what is hot? What is going to come to menus uh, to to restaurants near us? I think. Well, one, I think just this idea of transparency is going to be huge. Uh, transparency. You know, in food is something that I know. You know, consumers really care about, and restaurants have not been able to provide. Even when you go to a high-end restaurant and they say, "Here's where our food comes from," there's no real knowing that that's where the food comes from. And so, we do believe consumers are going to start to demand to know, real, you know, really know where their food comes from. Um, so that's one. Um, I'd say the other thing is this this idea of personalized food. Um, you know, food makes different people feel different ways, and people really react to it differently. And no one's really owned this idea of a personalized food system. And so, I, I do believe that a lot of a lot of companies are trying to do that, and mm-hmm. consumers are going to want that um, because you know what what I like and what makes me feel good is different than what you like and makes you feel good. And what about, you know, and get people to try new things, right? Is it kind of like how Netflix and Spotify, like, oh, you like, th- you like these foods, you should try this combination. It might be something to, you know, test out. Exactly. All right. I think this, I really appreciate the time, John. Anything else you want to touch on? No, this is great. Thank you, Steve. All right. That was great. I want to thank John Neiman, the co-founder. And, I stuttered, sorry. Well, that was great. I want to thank John Neiman, the co-founder and CEO of Sweet Greens. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great talking to you, Steve. That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a question or comment, please reach us at interview at podcastone.com.
An MBA from a globally recognized and celebrated business school is achievable on your terms. Find your fit among the Kellogg School of Management's innovative portfolio of MBA programs, including one-year, two-year, part-time, joint degree, and executive options. Wherever you are in your career and your life, there's a Kellogg program designed to help you succeed. Visit kellogg.northwestern.edu MBA. At the border. I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue. 